Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Psalm 45. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the title to this psalm indicates, it is a song of love. And uh, it is a song that uh, prophetically proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are elements in this psalm that uh, apply to Solomon and uh, in a in a typical or a shadowy way in which he uh, himself was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, Jesus Christ is the theme, theme of this, this wonderful psalm uh, in which he is proclaimed as a glorious king and as the husband of the church. And in the first part of the psalm, we considered it uh, some months ago. We see how the first five verses proclaim the Lord Jesus as a gracious and, and conquering uh, king. But this morning we're going to be look at, looking at verses 6 and 7, where Christ is proclaimed as our God and our anointed king. And uh, this is a psalm in which we are being taught from the word of God about uh, the Lord Jesus. We're being taught here in this prophetic passage of scripture about the one who was uh, born in Bethlehem. We're being taught about the true Christ of, uh, of Christmas, whose birth is celebrated at this time of year. And that is in contrast uh, to the way in which Jesus is uh, either forgotten or perhaps ignored or, or lied about or just simply unknown 
by so many people who yet acknowledge in some way his birth by celebrating Christmas at this time of year. And uh, we're thankful to be able to exercise this freedom of observing this, uh, this occasion, but only in the light of God's word in which the true identity and the glory of Jesus Christ is made known. And it's made known in a wonderful way in this psalm before us. And we want to begin by considering the way this psalm proclaims his uh, divine supremacy. Our text begins with these words, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And uh, this is not a change of subjects. It's not introducing an address directly to God. In contrast to the previous part of the uh, psalm that is referring to the Lord Jesus, no. Uh, Verse 6 continues to... Uh, speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in Psalm 102, we, we sang, we sang these words. As one lays a garment by, thou wilt change the starry sky. Like a vesture worn and old, but thy years shall ne'er be told. Thou wilt make thy servants race, ever live before thy face, and forever at thy side children's children shall abide. And it occurred to me as we sang this song, I wondered how many of you knew that you were singing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Explicitly, directly, according to the true meaning of Psalm 102. Well, that's another passage that uh, clearly, explicitly proclaims Jesus Christ as the eternal God. And we know that without doubt from the way the New Testament refers to both of these passages, not only Psalm 45, but uh, Psalm 102. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, we read, uh, But to the Son, that is in contrast to words spoken with respect to angels, but to the Son, He, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's our text right there, quoted in Hebrews. Cited as a clear demonstration that Jesus Christ is not only superior to angels a little bit, but he is infinitely superior because he is God. Or then the next few verses, and you, Lord, and in our, in our translations, these, these letters, Lord, are capitalized, right? And, uh, when, when the Bible does that, it's, it's distinguishing that word that is used for the, the name Jehovah or Yahweh from the word Lord that sometimes simply means master. This is a reference to Jehovah. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Words spoken to the Son, proclaiming his divine glory as the everlasting God, the creator who will fold up the heavens that he made as with a garment. What we see is that the most exalted descriptions of Almighty God are applied in Scripture to Christ. And we must say uh, to the baby born in Bethlehem, actually these quotations begin in verse uh, 6 where it says, 
when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. Well, when was the firstborn brought into the world? He was brought into the world by the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, by a babe born in Bethlehem. And so he was worshipped. It's not as if Jesus somehow, uh, because of his great dignity and his uniqueness as a wonderful man, was elevated to some kind of uh, status of, of deity, as if his divinity were something that he achieved, as if it is possible for God ever to become God. God is the everlasting God. Or as if it's possible for God to ever be anything less than God. No, no. The wise men, they worshiped Jesus. The young child at Bethlehem. Matthew 2 verse 9, we heard that quoted last night. We don't know how much these wise men knew, but we do know that when Jesus was a mere baby and throughout his life, it was never inappropriate to give him the same honor and worship as given to God. Elizabeth extolled Mary's unique privilege and calling as the mother of my Lord. Jesus never refused divine worship. He never corrected those who gave him divine worship because he is infinitely worthy of such worship because he was and he is God. He is the creator. He is the lawgiver who from Sinai's height, Sinai's heights gave the law in majesty and awe. Right? We sing that. O come, O come, Emmanuel. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted means God with us. Not in a figurative way, not in some metaphorical way, but in the reality of the eternal living God dwelling with us in the flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. How must we think about Jesus' birth then? Not simply at this time of the year, but all year long. Well, we should think of his birth with amazement and wonder at the condescension of God. I just quoted from 1 Timothy 3. This is the, the mystery of godliness. God manifested in the flesh. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And if it were not revealed in Scripture, if it were not true, it would be blasphemy to ascribe such dignity and honor and glory to any man. Right? See, that's one of the, the, the fatal errors and problems of any so-called uh, resemblance to the Christian faith that denies the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about those people that might knock on your door, and if you, if you probe a little bit, yeah, they'll probably admit that they're so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're not witnessing to the Lord Jesus as the true and living God. And they'll say things like, well, he was a God. What? He was a God? What's that? That's, that's polytheism, folks. That's, that's the way the gods of the Greek pantheon were viewed. Uh, different ranks of gods. Some higher, some lower. Jesus is not a God. Jesus is not God-like. Like some comic book figure. 
He is God. The true and eternal God. And that should be a theme of eternal wonder for us, as it will be. As God, He occupies a throne that is the highest throne of the universe. It's referred to as the throne of God and of the Lamb, repeatedly in the book of Revelation. In other words, it's one throne. The Lamb is in the midst of the throne. It is occupied by God. Thy celestial throne shall never sway, no never. That's a throne of his everlasting rule. Yes, this God was made flesh. Yes, this one, as true man and true God, speaks to God as his God. There is a distinction of persons. We'll consider that more tonight. But he is himself, true and everlasting God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's first that we need to hear from this text. Secondly, we hear of his everlasting rule. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter, you know, that's one of these, it's like a rod. Some of you children may have seen pictures of kings that, that hold a rod in their hand. Uh, it looks like a stick. It may be an ornate stick covered with gold, but that's a scepter. And that's a symbol of kingly authority. Sometimes kings might be armed uh, with a sword, and that might have a symbolic significance because the king is to exercise justice. But the scepter is a symbol of authority and rule. And everything about the rule of Jesus Christ is just and right. Uh, he doesn't simply have a justice department where this aspect of his government deals with matters of justice. Rather, every action of his dominion is absolutely fair and just uh, from his uh, care for the, the sick or the poor to his uh, national defense, if you will, to his correctional system. You know, I'm using figurative terms that describe different activities of, of governments as we know them. But Christ is in charge and in rule over every aspect of his kingdom. And he manifests this rule on behalf of his church. He's head over all things, but he exercises it especially on behalf of his church. And he always acts with perfect integrity. His words are never misleading. He never fails to keep his promises. He never uh, underestimates or understates or exaggerates what's involved in being a realm in his kingdom. He never discriminates unjustly or applies his laws unequally or unfairly, whether it's for reward or for punishment. He never acts simply according to policy or expediency. Now, you can recognize the contrast, can't you, with uh, every uh, earthly government or typical earthly governments. His government is perfectly just. He does right. And he does right because he loves righteousness. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. These things always go together. In fact, he loves righteousness enough uh, to establish righteousness by his own suffering. By suffering the penalty of our violation of God's righteousness. We broke God's law. And our mediator's love for his father 
And our mediator's love for righteousness is demonstrating in establishing righteousness by his death, honoring God's justice in a way that opens up mercy and acceptance to sinners so that he is the Lord, our righteousness, his righteousness given to us. His kingdom is glorious and it is good. And his kingdom is now. Very important. His kingdom is now. Not in its perfection, not in its uh, consummation or fullness, but in its present power. The birth of Jesus is not something uh, that uh, we, we celebrate once a year and then forget about as, that, as if his kingship has little relevance for our way of thinking and living now. You see, that's the problem with a, a view of, of uh, last things that looks for Jesus to come and establish his rule in Jerusalem. As if then his kingdom's really going to begin. According to scripture, Christ is now exalted. Not on a throne in Palestine somewhere, but on the throne of David in heaven. That throne of which David's throne was just a type in a foreshadowing of that everlasting throne that Jesus Christ occupies now. In Isaiah chapter 9, I believe it's another passage that uh, was read last night. It says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We cannot properly uh, understand the coming of Christ into this world without seeing him now as exalted in the heavens over all. We cannot, let me say, we cannot even properly see the kingdom of heaven. We cannot discern it in its true character. Remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. We said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And we might say, well, that means that in order to get to heaven, people need to be born again. Oh, yes, that's certainly true. But without a new birth, they do not have spiritual perceptions to recognize the reality of Christ's spiritual kingdom as it exists, as it is manifested. As I read this description of Christ's righteous rule, we cannot help but note a great contrast with the, the rulers and the political systems, whatever they may be of this present age. Characteristically, leaders are untrustworthy, and often the smell of corruption lingers around everything that they put their hand to. And it seems that every time they face a significant moral question, even in this free land in which we yet live, it seems like they always choose what's wrong rather than doing what's right. And yes, that calls for Christian concern. That calls for Christian testimony. That calls for Christian witness and prayer. And for some, it may call be a call to devote their, their careers or their lives to seeking to bring about political change or to serve in political positions. And that indeed can be a commendable and an honorable calling to serve in those capacities. But the perspective of our text must never be lost sight of. That Christ is king. 
And that's the main thing. And his kingdom is spiritual. And our main citizenship is in the city of God. That spiritual city that is manifest to faith, to believers in this world. And that also means that the Christian witness and testimony in this world is not uh, political. It's not what's wrong uh, with the government. But rather, we testify to the present rule of Christ. And we want to see it. And we want to see it ever more clearly in such a way that this reality uh, weighs upon us. And it, it, it directs our perspective and our attitude far more than what's on the news today or tomorrow. But our outlook is shaped by these unseen but real realities pertaining to the rule of Christ. So we recognize this rule now as a rule of grace and of truth. And we, we see in this present kingdom of Christ a call, a call to seek his kingdom, a kingdom which is not of this world, which we see now by faith. And we see it in the way, we see it in the way he, he feeds and the way he, uh, nourishes his people through his word and spirit by the means of grace. We see that he is very active in this world. Sometimes he is active in, in uh, uh, blinding and judging, sometimes the rulers of this world. But he is active likewise in protecting his people from the evil one. And we recognize his rod of, of discipline and correction. And we recognize his sovereignty in the way he bestows or he withholds his gifts and his good things. Also in our lives. For good, for the glory of his kingdom. We recognize the kingship of Christ in the way he continues to deliver people from spiritual darkness in the kingdom of this present evil age and translates them into the kingdom of his son. And so when I say his kingdom is spiritual, that doesn't mean that it's some kind of airy, fairy, not real uh, kind of kingdom that doesn't really have a tremendous bearing upon the way we think about our lives. If we're born again, we perceive the reality of the kingdom in such a way that we gladly submit ourselves to the king and we worship him and we love him and we want his honor to be promoted. And our ambition and our, our goals and aspirations for the future is not some kind of Christian nationalism where our government or the governments of this world are all going to be Christianized. And the law of God is going to be observed everywhere in this present age. That's not the the Bible's vision. If you want to read more of it, there's an article in the latest Mid-American Messenger on Christian nationalism. I encourage you to read it because it is a growing thing. It's, it's a, it is a thing today. And a lot of uh, professing Christians and their reaction to what's happening with the government, they're all obsessed with uh, somehow uh, bringing about political change. And that's all they want to talk about. That's not our Christian testimony. Those are not our Christian priorities. We see the Lord's patience and grace indeed at work in this world. And we also know that the rebellion of men against him doesn't disturb, it doesn't disrupt, it doesn't threaten his kingdom one iota. This is our king whom we worship and love and serve. And then thirdly and finally, our text also speaks of his anointing, his matchless uh, anointing. 
Verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And when we hear this word anointing, we probably think of uh, the uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that word anointing was uh, used uh, throughout the Old Testament to describe the official ordination service, if you will, of, of uh, priests and uh, uh, sometimes prophets and, and kings. A ceremony in which actual oil, probably a fragrant oil, was, was poured upon their heads symbolizing their entrance into this this holy calling that they were given. But in every case, it was a calling that in, in, a, in a dim, shadowy way represented who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he would do as our chief prophet, our only high priest and eternal king. And when we think of the anointing of Jesus, yes, we properly think of his baptism. We have no account of Jesus being literally anointed with oil, but we do have the record of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And that Holy Spirit is the reality to which those other anointings pointed. He was given the Spirit, and uh, the Gospel of John says, uh, without measure, like, like a limitless supply of the Holy Spirit, equipping him and enabling him as also a true man, to carry out the work of his office as our Savior. There may be a combination of thoughts here in terms of the fulfillment of this passage uh, in the life of Christ. Not only his uh, anointing by the Spirit at, the, uh, at the, uh, the, the commencement of his official work, his public ministry, if you will, but anointing also had significance in its use, its celebratory uh, use on occasion where fragrant oil would be poured upon the heads of those uh, participating in joyous events, especially upon persons of honor and rank. And in that connection, anointing uh, also has the the character of a, of a kind of honor and reward bestowed upon people. And that, that seems to be suggested also in our text where it says, you're... You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And in that case, we might associate this anointing of gladness also with his exaltation after his work on earth was finished in the time of his humiliation as the man of sorrows. And in this sense, this language suitably also refers to his Return to the Father. Think of uh, the words of Psalm uh, Psalm 16, where it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's actually a passage that's also quoted in Hebrews 1 with respect to Christ. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Which our Savior entered upon his his exaltation. Remember Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. I referred to Acts chapter 22, and that's significant in this connection also because it's associated with the Holy Spirit, where it says of Christ, 
This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see in here. That's the explanation for Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, Peter connects it to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And his receiving the promised Holy Spirit, not that he might be equipped to fulfill his office, but that as a reward of his faithfulness, that he might lavish upon his bride the Holy Spirit, whom he had obtained for them by his humiliation and suffering. And what that means also, brothers and sisters, is that we now share in his joy, right? He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. There's a comparison. Christ was anointed without measure. But the oil that was poured on Aaron's beard, remember the, the typology of Psalm 133, the oil poured upon his head, ran down his beard, and on his garments. And so those who are Christ and who belong to him are anointed with that same oil of gladness as we possess his spirit. The joy of our king who entered uh, his humiliation as an infant on his way to the cross of suffering, that joy, especially as depicted in Psalm 45, is the joy of the bridegroom. His suffering is over. and His, his joyful goal is achieved. He obtained for himself the bride he loved so well, so much as to give himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, a glorious bride without spot, and wrinkle. That's the great joy of our Savior. We hear it in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Similar language in Zephaniah uh, chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst. Oh, what does that sound like? That's Emmanuel. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Let there be no doubt, brothers and sisters, that these prophecies uh, also are concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, who rejoices in you, who rejoices in us as his bride. The one who rules now over all on behalf of the church and the one who is coming again and he's coming again for his bride. Amen.